Welcome to another episode of NeuroPodCases, a clinical neuroscience podcast. Welcome to PodCases. Today I'm here with um, Dr. Smith, who is a consultant anaesthetist on the Walton Intensive Care Unit. Um, so we're delighted to have you here today. Yeah, thanks for having us here, Becca. Today we're going to discuss some cases that we'll see commonly on the intensive care unit in the tertiary neurocentre um, and just ask some questions around that if that's okay. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Great. So the first case that we have today is a 60-year-old man who was admitted to the intensive care unit following a fall from a significant height with an isolated head injury. Um, he is found to have a traumatic extra-jaw haemorrhage, which has been evacuated into theatre and then returned to the intensive care unit. From the perspective of the intensivist, what are the key priorities um, for this patient in the early post-operative period? Yeah, so there's several aspects to this, which really you could sum up in essentially doing what really is the job of any clinician, which is to recognise the patient's underlying condition gain and use the knowledge that you have of that condition in its normal course and try and guide the patient through that and recognize that things are going in the correct direction and timely manner so really for this patient you're going to need close liaison with the surgeon in the use of your own knowledge of how this condition generally goes uh, to work out whether for example, if the surgeon is happy with the intra-op findings and the brain looks healthy, uh, that you would then progress to try and wake the patient up quickly. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, fairly quickly after arriving on ITU with discussion with the surgeon, you might decide that actually a sedation break and an early um, um, extubation is in order. Or if intraoperatively or, or the early CT scan findings and the way the patient's behaved prior to the operation indicates that the brain is very swollen and unhappy, so to speak, that you might then decide that this patient needs a, a period of, of sedation and ventilation and neuroprotective measures, which I'm sure we'll talk about in a bit. Um, so you need to try and work out in a broader picture which of the two paths this person's going to fa- fall into. Um, obviously, from a critical care point of view, less time someone is on critical care on a ventilator uh, the better it is because the chance of incurring the side effects of, of ventilation or all the therapies that that includes um, are reduced but if you have to for other reasons continue to ventilate and, and, and support the other organs then that, that's sort of a risk balance judgment you need to make okay so um, this patient, so he's he's um, been in theatre and they've decided that um, they've decided that they want to put um, an ICP bolt in um, and to monitor that on on the unit. So what what does an IT, um, an ICP bolt measure and what would be the significance of that from an intensive care perspective? Be okay. So when you have a patient uh, where your neurology, which is the gold standard to assess someone's brain function when that is clouded with anesthetic drugs then the only instruments we have to see if there's anything going on intracranially with a patient is to look at their pupillary response which i think everyone can agree is a fairly late sign 
for mis mischief going on like hematoma expansion or uh, cranial contents swelling and expanding uh, causing uh, brainstem compression. So with the advent of strain gauges and whetstone bridges which are uh, um, electronical, electronical uh, equipment that um, uh, you know has been developed in the 50s uh, and the 60s we're able to produce um, pressure gauges that can be inserted through a bore, burr hole in the skull into um, various places um, intraparenchymally, intraventricularly or whether it's just um, within the parenchyma superficially uh, you can place those and it can give us a number um, and really it can give us aside from a number it can give us several different things which you could argue is a, a similar story for most uh, monitoring modalities in ITU is that it was often invented for one thing but can be extrapolated for several different things so absolutely it can give you a number of a pressure mm -hmm. within someone's head while they're asleep and the obvious uh, assumption is that if the pressure rises above what's normal physiological numbers then it, it essentially prompts us to to facilitate a scan um, and again the scan is the the gold standard to find out what is going on within that person's head uh, and that's really to change the course of that patient's journey mm -hmm. in that whether you would take back to theatre uh, if there was a blood clot and you would evacuate the blood clot or if there was a lot of swelling whether you would um, undertake another neurosurgical intervention like a decompression um, to alleviate that pressure. Uh, as we have had ICP monitoring around longer you can look at the waveform itself um, and there are different aspects of the waveform that you can look at and interpret and that can give you a, a degree um, or an indication as to how compliant the, the, the cranial contents are. Um, you can also uh, look at the cerebral perfusion pressure by looking at the um, central venous pressure and the mean arterial pressure and you can optimize that um, and there's no guidance or evidence to show one thing or another but um, in an area of medicine that is relatively evidence-free it is more of a research tool at the moment um, but by extrapolation using physiological values um, which we kind of stick to in, in intensive care um, uh, you can tailor your treatments, your, your vasopressors or your ventilation uh, or your your big management plans according to what the ICP measures and tells you. Okay, so you, you sort of mentioned um, cerebral perfusion pressure and um, using ICP bolt um, and talking mm. about that related to um, the mean arterial pressure. So why is this important in particular for patients on um, a neurointensive care unit? So really, I suppose it's an interesting uh, um, aside into what, what pressures are, are we really bothered about and, and outside of intensive care circles, people often look at the systolic and diastolic pressures um, and really from when I started training in intensive care, it was the first time where mean arterial pressures were looked at and you know the answer given to me back then, which is still probably fair point is you know your cardiac cycle is um is made up of various different parts of the uh, relaxation and contraction of the ventricles and the atria um and what we are globally after is what the average pressure across the whole cardiac cycle is because that is translated through your arterial tree down into a driving pressure through your viscera 
which is is really the whole job of your your cardiac output, um, and so uh, that is by surrogacy um, what we measure, and it's usually transduced with the arterial line uh, transducer at the level of the heart um, by definition. In neurointensive care, that is altered, and it's usually the transducer placed at the level of the tragus. Um, because we're bothered more with the sort of perfusion pressures uh, within the brain rather than, you know, systemically at the heart. Mm-hmm. Okay, um, and you, you sort of touched on this before as well, but neuroprotective factors. So we've already sort of touched on blood pressure, but what other things are important to um, consider, really, with these patients? Uh, well, the, the two, well, the main general point were of uh, neurointensive care is that you can't undo the damage that's done to the brain at the time of the injury. Uh, Damage to neurons is irreversible, and so the stuff that's happened at scene or at the ictus um, of the insult, uh, we can't do anything about. But we know when someone's severely brain injured, they don't breathe properly and they become hypoxic. Um, And if they have suffered other trauma, they become hypotensive. And we know both of those things, hypotension and hypoxia worsen outcomes from brain injuries. Um, and so that, in essence, is the whole game of what we're doing is to facilitate treatment and transfer um, of a patient to somewhere where they can be operated on if required, mm-hmm. but also to mitigate those hypoxic and hypotensive periods um, to try and maximize the amount of healthy brain that's left at the end of, of the whole episode. Okay. and. Um is there anything else um, that you might try and control or monitor? Yeah, so as we said, you control the blood pressure and you can use vasopressors and fluids to try and augment the blood pressure and support that. Uh, you can invasively ventilate someone um, to maximise oxygenation. And that's not to go for normal for n- numbers super normally. Um, you'd only really want a, you know, SATs sort of 98, 99, PAO2s over 13 are the kind of numbers that we go for. Mean arterial pressures, again, without an ICP bolt in, you'd want at least a mean of 90. Um, uh, and then once you've got your bolt in, uh, you can titrate according to cerebral perfusion pressure um, uh, as required. And when someone's been ventilated, one of the most exquisite things that can control cerebral blood flow and intracranial pressure is their uh, entitled CO2. Uh, and so by controlling an entitled CO2, you can, what, what's termed, relax the brain um, and optimise its perfusion um, uh, to have it in the um, the optimal position to, to receive um, optimal blood flow. Okay. So for this patient, um, see, he um, has had a persistently raised ICP um, despite optimization of neuroprotective factors and he's he's been to scan and the surgeons feel that there's nothing that they can do from a surgical point of view um, so he has had some osmotherapy and um, what was what is the mechanism for um, osmotherapy okay so yeah uh, it's often a scenario that when we've exhausted the avenues of surgical intervention and we've maximized neuroprotection and um, by controlling blood pressure controlling oxidation and CO2 as well as having the patient fully sedated um, so all those factors are done if they have a persistently high ICP despite all that then the next thing we look at is is as you said osmotherapy 
so Osma therapy is a uh, we talk about two drugs really um, one is hypertonic saline um, and one is mannitol so they both had subtly different actions um, which I think is beyond the realm of, of this podcast uh, but globally they both in the early phase of administration uh, increase the uh, intravascular osmotic effect so draw in fluids from uh, interstitial tissue um, and the cells globally around the body and that drawing in of water into the intravascular space increases cardiac output um, increases stroke volume and increases um, cerebral perfusion so in the early phase very quickly it optimizes cerebral perfusion from that perspective thereafter in the the intermediate period after that mannitol moves out um, into the the kidney uh, into the nephron and then acts as a diuretic uh, direct oncotic diuretic uh, and produces diuresis, pretty significant diuresis which then reduces your intravascular volume and worsens your cardiac output and your, your stroke volume and reduces your cerebral perfusion and mm-hmm. um, but there are some secondary sort of um, uh, antioxidative effects that are pur- purported in the papers that um, reduce neuronal damage Hypertonic saline uh, has a bit more of a persistent effect um, in that it it maintains that um, osmotic pressure of drawing in fluid. So it maintains your cardiac output a little bit better for a bit longer. But it also serves to dehydrate the tissues um, and what we're thinking about is mainly the brain. And by dehydrating the brain, A, you allow more space um, for the blood vessels within um, the closed skull uh, to occupy and so facilitate a bit better flow you and this is similar to mannitol as well by having um, a higher volume of water within your circulation you lower the hematocrit and optimize flow a little bit more mm-hmm. um, through the brain but really the the ongoing hypertonic cell line effect is is from that sort of longer term dehydration of the, the brain parenchyma um, which reduces the volume it occupies and reduces the intracranial pressure mm-hmm. okay so um, uh, moving on to um, a different case so mm-hmm. for the next case we've got a slightly different um, so we've got a patient who is a 50 year old male and he is an inpatient on a medical ward um, so he presented to hospital three days prior following a one week history of progressive weakness um, examination demonstrates flaccid weakness affecting all four limbs with absent reflexes. Following a lumbar puncture, um, demonstrating normal CSF, white cell count, and elevated protein, a working diagnosis of Guillain Barre syndrome was made, and the patient was commenced on IV immunoglobulin. Um, the ward team asked for a critical care review as they are concerned regarding the patient's respiratory function. Um, so this patient continues to deteriorate and the decision is made to intubate him and bring him down to ITU. Um, once established on the ventilator, it becomes much brighter, um, the sedation is reduced and he's just having a little bit of alfentanil just um, to help with tube tolerance. Um, so the team think that an early tracheostomy may benefit this patient. How would you make that sort of decision about an, sort of an early tracheostomy? Um, I think the way to approach these sorts of decisions are are really to approach all of your decision-making uh, within critical care with the same kind of approach. 
and that is you've got to weigh up the benefits of the action you're going to do versus the uh, potential complications and side effects um, and I think if you can build up a rationale of pros and cons and follow the route that where the pros outweigh the cons then I think you'll be absolutely fine uh, with whatever you do um, so the fact is that there's pretty much no intervention on ITU that is absolutely necessary and you could extrapolate that to the entire you know field of medicine there isn't anything that you have to do um you have to work out whether you, you you have to know that every intervention you do has side effects um and so you have to balance those side effects with the, the potential benefits that you're, you're producing so you can not do a tracheostomy in every patient mm -hmm. and give them more time yeah and so it's important knowing that there are some potential very serious side effects uh, to tracheostomy insertion, mm -hmm. um, that you balance those risks uh, and benefits quite, quite evenly, um, and then equally document that. So, if a patient, broadly, you don't try to use a tracheostomy uh, in the first instance. Um, you'd often anecdotally have to have a couple of failed extubations, yeah. um, so that you know that the patient has has tried with that. Um, um, definitive airway um, and then is clinically required reintubation and that tells you quite a lot of information it sounds counterintuitive that you're mm. going through this process but it is an important process which is telling you globally um, that the person uh, the patient is, is uh, coping and doing well or they're not mm -hmm. um, so you, you mentioned sort of talking about risks and benefits um, and with the tracheostomy, what are the sort of risks that you need to bear in mind? And particularly for patients who might have a tracheostomy on the ward, what's sort of the risk of having a patient on, not just on intensive care, but potentially these patients are going to be discharged to a ward at mm. some point? Well, the difficulty is with anything in medicine that things become normalised. Mm -hmm. And it's very important to remember that by virtue of being on ITU and being on a ventilator or, or being intubated, major things have gone wrong within the person, mm -hmm. uh, the patient, um, in the first place. So to be intubated <clears throat> means that core reflexes that you're normally born with, and we can all agree are es essential for life and healthy living, they have gone awry now, whether that's because of multi-system, multi-organ, dysfunction in a general critical care or a specific neurological problem it's the same endpoint um, and so that's an, a, an important factor that someone with a tracheostomy on a ward should automatically ring bells that normal physiology is not not true mm -hmm. um, and so they're a very vulnerable patient I suppose you could say to start with yeah. the specific things that people have tracheostomies for are long-term disruption in their ability to protect their airway and then the other main thing is that they need long-term ventilation mm -hmm. and that's not usually a situation uh, in this this kind of case yeah. that in a long-term you know usually their immune suppression uh, and therapy works um, and they are able to breathe for themselves but they're still profoundly weak and, and, and have the inability to protect their airway mm -hmm. and so um, the issues around 
if a, a tracheostomy became dislodged, um, yeah. or, or if you're um, in the process of weaning the patient from the tracheostomy, um, they, they, there's still that underlying problem of um, underlying bulbar dysfunction and, and, and lack of airway protection. Mm-hmm. Um, and until you have that normal situation restored where that person looks after their airway, then any ma- dysfunction or, or displacement of a tracheostomy can potentially be fatal because a loss of airway and an inability to breathe or blocked airway can be catastrophic within a couple of minutes. Of course. Um, so obviously there's different types of tracheostomies. So what what is the difference between having a surgical versus a percutaneous tra- tracheostomy? So most tracheostomies are performed percutaneously on the intensive care unit. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's only in patients that really will be difficult to insert because of anatomy, because of vascular structures in the way, or because, not in this case, but other cases they have um, fixed necks that we can't extend and move around, um, that we might consider um, uh, asking the ENT surgeons from an entry to go across and perform a surgical trachea. Um, Percutaneous tracheostomy is done on the ITU. As you see, Rebecca, Mm -hmm. the patient is fully sedated uh, fully ventilated and uh, it is treated as though it's an operation in terms of sterility but a bronchoscopy is performed and the position of the tube within the patient's trachea is located and is withdrawn to a point where you can see uh, the inside of the trachea where the second person is is palpating and then you're able to uh, pass a selling a wire through the front of the trachea in the optimum position and then essentially perform a selling a technique um, dilatation over the, the wire and then eventually have a, a tracheostomy railroaded over that mm-hmm. um, and then finally comp- confirmed in position with the bronchoscopy itself. Surgical tracheostomy, again, the patient is intubated and taken to theatre, um, but the surgeons do, uh, for want of a better word, an open dissection of the front of the patient's neck mm-hmm. down into the trachea. Uh, usually a window is cut through the trachea and at which point um, your sort of patency of your airway is lost and the tracheostomy is then inserted by the surgeons through that window at which point the, the anaesthetist has to disconnect from the endotracheal tube and then reconnect to the tracheostomy at the right time and then the surgeons close up the surgical wound around the tracheostomy uh, and uh, in both cases stay sutures are placed uh, to hold the tracheostomy for the first week or two um, and then they're removed. Uh, a stoma then forms as that wound heals mm-hmm. and that gives you access um, from the trachea to the outside world. Um, and that's very briefly what, what the two entail. Yeah, I think that's a really good explanation. Yeah. Well, what we do then is once the patient has finished the requirement for airway protection um, or, or, or ventilator support, as you've seen over your months with us, is the patient generally gets better, uh, becomes stronger, engages more in their physiotherapy, yeah. and they, they essentially need the ventilator for less and less periods of time. And at that point, they're recuperating, um, and we all acknowledge that they're getting into the recuperation phase of their illness. Mm-hmm. Um, you can then downsize the tracheostomy. So the tracheostomy sits physically smaller within the trachea, and more air can flow past it okay. and up through the larynx. Um, so you've got what's called downsizing. So you downsize 
uh, half size so a whole size mm -hmm. and you give them more and more periods of time with the cuff down yep. uh, allowing vocalization and phonation um, and then eventually the plan with most tracheostomies is to remove them okay. and occlude the stoma yeah. and it then heals okay. uh, on its own yeah. and that's a relatively simple process where the healing it doesn't take a long time yeah um again it depends on patients um, um how they are after their time on mm. itu and i always um describe intensive care as being um in what's described as the death zone in in, in um everest um, so that's the uh, altitude above which you need oxygen and the body actually um is in a catabolic state um, no matter what and so you, you can't live there permanently uh, and you actively die whilst mm -hmm. you're up at that height um, and that I say is quite a, a, a good way of putting how ITU is that people don't thrive on intensive care mm -hmm. um, uh, you merely sort of survive uh, and so that's why we're always constantly trying to get the person better and out of ITU mm -hmm. as quick as possible so the reason I'm saying that is that um, tissues don't heal particularly well when you're critically ill and so yeah if you're still on critical care um, for, for a long, long time, then you don't heal particularly quickly. Mm -hmm. um, but usually as people are getting better, yeah, they, um, they're on the ward, they've got better intake of calories uh, and protein, um, and they, uh, they start to heal better. So yes, usually it's a fairly quick process in the, the, the whole scheme of things. Okay, that's great. Um, so we've got another case. Um, so this lady is a 25-year-old who's transferred across from the major trauma centre following a high-speed road traffic accident. So prior to hospital, she was only a GCS of three and had fixed pupils and was intubated by the HEMS team. Um, so the, the neurosurgical team feel that um, there would be no benefit of any surgical intervention as a CT scan shows a catastrophic intracranial hemorrhage um, you arrange a family discussion um, what is your general approach to these early prognostic discussions uh, it's a very difficult situation which I suppose there's no uh, right or wrong way of approaching um, within the realms of, of being sensible um, I think maintaining your humanity through these sorts of things is, is important while saying you can't prognosticate completely, there are things you can definitely say, mm -hmm. um, which is the other way of looking at it. When people talk about prognostication, quite rightly, you can't prognosticate, but you, you, you don't have to focus on the fact you can't prognosticate. You can actually say quite a bit about the other things in this case, for example. So um, you can sp say that a high-speed crash rendering someone with a GCS of three has undergone significant brain damage so you can say that to the family um, in the first place you can say that for pupils to become unreactive um, is another very poor prognostic sign mm -hmm. um, and that, that indicates that there's been severe brain damage uh, at the scene um, but as I was alluding to earlier on you don't say all this kind of information straight up with with you know, this is going to take a bit of time to sort through mm -hmm. um, and quite rightly it's not a quick process so often in the first few discussions you're familiarizing yourself with the patient the patient's family um, uh, you're finding out the dynamics how they are 
how they're assimilating information. Uh, there are some times when they're just not understanding anything because they're so bereft at that stage in time and you can't tell them anything particularly useful at that time. Um, you can build rapport with that patient's family and um, work, out, work out what kind of language they use, what kind of terms they work out with best. Um, who in the family is the sensible person sometimes and will understand things um, and who controls the family if you like so there's often a patriarch or a matriarch mm -hmm. who who corrals the rest of the family into to, uh, what's going on so yeah. there's all those non-discussed non-technical um, kind of how you communicate with people that really isn't discussed a lot but is absolutely the most invaluable part of the whole thing mm -hmm. um, you can though early stages say that this is looking very bad and there isn't anything you can do now the way and this is why you know I think it should be taught in a lot of things the natural process of a disease is that <clears throat> everything that has happened at say this lady's local hospital in the trauma center everything to arrival to here is absolutely in the best interest of trying to get her to the place but what we want to know is after a period of time that we're saying that things are stable we're going to need to stop sedation and assess the brain damage and they're the kind of terms I use maybe not in the first instance but when we've built that relationship and we might be having the second or third discussion is we're getting to the point where we're going to stop sedation and assess the degree of brain damage mm -hmm. and that can be anything from deeply comatosed with a GCS of three, which is obviously bad and shows, you know, unsurvivable brain damage through to what we all hope, which will be a GCS of 14 or 15 or, or, or you know, a motor score of five or six, yeah. whether localizing or obeying commands, which is shown that broadly, um, um, most of the levels within the central nervous system are are functioning to a degree you know that is not telling them that, that their loved one is coming back and will be the same personality or any of the other fine and mm -hmm. uh, neurological um, things that we you know are really important for them as a family but from an intensive care point of view it tells us whether something is is catastrophic and unsurvivable or something that we just need to give more time there's a huge gray area in between that which is very difficult to say uh, how the longer term outcomes are going to be and that's probably an area that needs to be a lot more work done where we're looking at what the longer term outcomes are mm. <clears throat> and really important things about functional ability quality of life and um, ability to live independently or come in and again probably need to be looked at um, so that you can have that more nuanced discussion with a family about what is what would that person have how would they would they be happy with that kind of survival mm -hmm. and that's very important as well that i often highlight early doors just through experience it's easier to to lay out is how their relationship with the whole process works what i mean by that is um next of kin give us their, their our best insight into what that person's wishes and thoughts were on yeah. various scenarios they have no legal obligation or right um, to make any decisions they don't make any decisions and 
I'd say it's very important for them to do that because it's not a burden for them. So often people do feel like they they are they've read in, in papers or they've seen television programs and they're under the impression that it's them who makes decisions mm -hmm. and it's very important for their own i suppose mental health that you you can reassure them that you know legally only the clinicians can make a decision for someone when they're incapacitated mm -hmm. and that we make our decisions in best interests in an emergency which are often very straightforward but when we get to a point where things aren't necessarily straightforward we then still would work in that person's best interest but we need to assess what those best interests are and so we would often speak to the next of kin as someone who has known that person in normal times yeah. and that gives us an idea for us to still make that decision mm -hmm. uh, and a lot of patients families are reassured by that rather than offended because mm -hmm. it, it takes that burden that um, the kind of passengers and just observing rather than directly making hardcore decisions yeah. on, on different difficult subjects so unfortunately for this lady so she's had her sedation stopped but unfortunately she doesn't show any improvement um so it's believed that the patient is brain dead and so confirmation of this is arranged what does this mean and what tests are involved in this process so this is a very specific scenario uh when someone is brain dead and that's not to be confused with someone who is severely brain damaged mm -hmm. <clears throat> Being brain dead is obviously a severe, severely brain damaged situation, yeah. but it, it is a definite medical legal situation where we can exhibit that there's no brainstem reflexes present in that patient clinically. Okay. Now it varies according to different countries in terms of the burden of showing um, irreversible brain damage um, uh, and lack of perfusion, etc., etc., in America and all that sort of stuff. But in Britain, as long as you have an underlying diagnosis, which is um, in, in keeping with, with what you're seeing clinically, as long as you've got signs of brainstem damage and compression, uh, whether that be through MRI or CT, and a clinical picture of an absence of brainstem reflexes outside of any influence of any drugs or sedation, um, then we undertake brainstem testing. Um, which then confirms an absence of brainstem reflexes. Um, there is a performer to follow, which is good because that takes out the human factor side of things and is done in a very regimented, um, uh, conformed way, which has been agreed internationally as to the right way of doing things. And we broadly assess all the cranial nerves in order um, and prove that their reflexes are absent. Um, so that goes right through from pupillary response, corneal response, mm -hmm. uh, all the way through to uh, gag reflex, uh, reflexes to um, stimulation peripherally and centrally, um, an absence of cough reflex, as well as um, uh, an inability for the person to breathe um, um, whilst maintaining oxygenation. So you can um, maintain someone's oxygenation uh, through breathing circuits um, off the ventilator um, but they show no signs of respiration um, despite an, an, a proven climb in carbon dioxide uh, within the blood um, and that in itself is, is um, uh, sort of concludes the tests that we do and as I was saying at the beginning of this talk is you've got to remember 
that you're born with these reflexes. Um, without them, you cannot maintain life. So the fact that someone doesn't breathe for an excess of five minutes, despite CO2 climbing, you know, on top of the pupils being unreactive mm -hmm. to light, there'd be no corneal reflex. They're all conclusive that that person is, is brainstem dead. Yeah. So moving on to our final case. Um, so a 30 year old woman is admitted with new onset generalized tonic-clonic seizures. Despite treatment with IV lorazepam and loading on IV phenytoin, the patient continues to seize and is felt to be in stasis epilepticus. Following discussion with the medical team, the decision is made to transfer the patient to ITU. What are the medical options at this stage for managing seizures and how do you decide between which drugs to use? Um, so I think this scenario is interesting uh, in no small part because there's often a kind of extrapolation of general um, guidance adherence with a lot of other things in medicine uh, that that translates through to intensive care and when you actually read a lot of guidance whether that be guidance on managing um, seizures or guidance for managing stroke or or myocardial injury or whatever it is is a lot of these guidance when you actually read them preclude management on on um, intensive care because things have gone majorly wrong as we've said on intensive mm -hmm. care for you to be there uh, and the risk profile for the all these things shifts subtly um, and it is beyond the realms of a lot of these papers and nice guidance to take into account for that and so you have to make uh, individualized um, treatment plans and rationale building um, for, for really all of your management plans that you do and that is equally so for someone who who's uh, in stage epilepticus so by definition if your seizure hasn't stopped despite benzodiazepines and loading with anti-epileptic drugs in the first instance then we all can broadly agree that neuronal damage is going to start happening at some point soon and we need to quiesce that and stop all that excessive electrical activity often um, a general anesthetic as it's termed is the answer so you've tried all your first and second line things patient if they're clinically deteriorating from a respiratory or a cardiovascular state you may intervene earlier but you build a picture that the risks of a general anesthetic and that person dies from an anaphylaxis to one of the drugs you've given or, or an inability to ventilate the patient in the the short term after you've put them to sleep then you can say i've tried all your other options so it comes back to that building that um risk benefit profile mm -hmm. um that you don't use a general anesthetic early doors you need to be you need to have strong indications and, and to say you've done x y and z already it's not working then a, a general anesthetic is your next plan and generally the drugs involved in a general anesthetic and traditionally it would have been um thiopentone so mm -hmm. a, a fast acting barbiturate is um very good at suppressing electrical activity within the central nervous system uh, and, and pretty much does put someone down into burst suppression where the eeg is suppressed to the point where um you're preventing underlying um, um, burst of electrical activity mm -hmm. um, that usually quiesces everything in 
Walton Centre, with us being a tertiary centre, we have a lot of weird and wonderful um, cases that um, the patients have super complex epilepsy. Uh, it can be partial seizures, which are really severe and life-changing and life debilitating. And there never really is full control of the seizures, even even on multiple anti-epileptics. Or we have patients that are so super refractory to everything they've been given, they still seize despite a general anaesthetic. Mm-hmm. And that really is in the realms of the unknown. And so close liaison and discussion between ourselves and the neurologist is key. Mm-hmm. They're normally already on multiple anti-epileptics with lots of cross-reactivity. Um, we end up blocking multiple channels, important channels within the body. Mm-hmm. And so we've got to be very careful about um, monitoring for side effects. Um, um, and so to decide what drugs we use is a true MDT decision. Um, it's usually fairly considered. And when we go beyond the realms of our anaesthetic sedation, not quiescing epileptic activity, then um, uh, it is often on a case by case patient, um, case by case scenario. Beyond propofol and the other anti epileptics, <coughs> we'll be using midazolam as an infusion, again cautiously uh, within, um, within dosing regimes. Um, we can use thiopental. Um, it has lots of side effects and, and yeah. it is not good to use as an infusion but you can use boluses and infusions of yeah. thiopental and ketamine ironically can um, um, can stop seizure activity but there is a, a school of thought that beyond an hour or so that epileptic activity um, uses different um, channels rather than GABA they tend to use NMDA yeah. receptors and so by using ketamine you can antagonize that and um, and stop the seizure okay so if you've given patients um, a general anesthetic or various anesthetic drugs um how would you monitor them for ongoing seizure activity i think the main thing is um clinically so um if there is seizure activity mm-hmm. and it's manifest as tonic clonic movements or jerks um, then that is a good idea um, so again you know trying not to paralyze a patient mm-hmm. um, with muscle relaxant yep. uh, is always a good option um, the gold standard is an EEG okay. and there are some beds within Horsley that have the ability to monitor someone's EEG uh, 24-7 now it's a national problem that we don't have the uh, neurophysiologists on 24 7 to, to do that okay. so what we can try and do is build a picture of that patient clinically in hours with a plan mm-hmm. and strategic eeg monitoring in terms of having a neurophysiologist review the the eeg yeah. um, and we can correlate that um to a clinical picture um there is sometimes some intensivists used um spectral analysis which mm-hmm. is an anesthetic modality monitoring modality mm-hmm. where the EEG is um, turned into a number essentially through Fournier regression analysis um, and we broadly say that you know an abyss of 40 to 60 is anaesthetized mm-hmm. and so if using intravenous anesthetics you can you can monitor how asleep or anaesthetized the person is um, <clears> and <throat> that's contentious in terms of 
it's not intended for use in, in epilepsy. Yeah. Um, it doesn't tell you how much of a degree of epileptic activity is going on. Um, but in an ad hoc basis, we've been able to correlate that to a degree of birth suppression um, with a neurophysiologist. And so out of hours have got a number to titrate sedation to. Okay. But um, the main answer is that it's through EEG often cannot be done 24 hours yeah. despite it's been a tertiary unit and so we have some work around to try and work by proxy along those lines yeah, great um so that's the last case thank you so much excellent for no it's pleasure really interesting i'm sure um you'll enjoy it yeah good stuff no thank you for listening for more information about this episode please visit our website at neuropodcases.co.uk mm-hmm.